There's an old saying that goes like this. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Think about how you and I live. We spend our lives doing everything we can to prevent death, to push it back. And it's because we treat death as so very final. And we may believe in heaven. We may believe that there is life beyond this one, and yet we still don't like to deal with death. We don't like to think about our own eventual death, and we certainly don't like dealing with the death of others. And the fact is that when someone we love or admire or respect passes away, it leaves a hole in our lives. When I was a senior in college, a good friend of mine took his own life. That was a long time ago. But it left a mark on my soul that lingers to this day. When my dad died at age 64, it not only deprived me of a father, it meant that my kids would grow up without knowing their grandfather. There's pain in that loss. And most of you understand exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? When we encounter death, it leaves a mark. And it's true for us. And it was very true for the very first group of people who chose to live as followers of Jesus. And we live so far from their story that, that we can easily and glibly talk about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And we can do so without thinking about the way those events marked the lives of Jesus' closest friends. Those friends who watched him die. I don't think we will ever fully grasp the impact of Jesus' return to life unless we first understand the impact of his death on those in his inner circle, those people who loved him and cared for him and followed him. And his loss, his death, like the death of any close friend, filled them with grief. It was heartbreaking. And yet it was so much more because of the kind of life which Jesus had lived. Jesus' friends had Listen to him teach profound truths about the kingdom of God. They'd watched him reinforce his teaching by accomplishing a variety of miracles. In response, at least some of the disciples had affirmed their belief that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Yet they also believed, quite logically, that the Messiah had to stay alive to accomplish his purposes. A dead Messiah wasn't going to be much use to anyone. So when Jesus was killed, their dreams were crushed. He must not have been the Messiah after all. He simply was a great friend, a great teacher who now was dead. 
Think about the impact of what they experienced. This person they had followed, this ministry that they had invested up to three years of their lives in pursuing, it all was over. It was finished. Jesus was finished. After all, hadn't they even heard Jesus himself say from the cross, it is finished? They'd never see him again. That's what they deeply believed. All they had left was the memory of what he had taught them. And yet, it's not actually over. Jesus is not dead, and he's not yet done. His work on the cross is finished, but he's not yet finished with his work because his work is still to build the kingdom of God. The very first indication that Jesus has unfinished business to address is the empty tomb. Yet by itself, the empty tomb is not evidence, it's not proof that Jesus actually is alive. The empty tomb just means the body's missing. And if Jesus never shows up again, questions will remain. Jesus' followers, therefore, need to see him alive again to verify the reality that a supernatural event has taken place. His followers must realize that he is so much more than a dead teacher. He is the risen Lord, and there still is a mission to fulfill. And so Jesus starts showing up in physical form throughout Easter Sunday. He appears in person to the women who go out to the tomb the first thing that morning. He appears to Simon Peter. He walks with two disciples along a road outside of town. All of this news spreads among the disciples. So late that day they gather to discuss these incredible reports. And they're talking excitedly to one another, trying to make sense of it all. And I think we can, we can imagine some of the wild conversations that would result in the midst of trying to come to grips with this. Are, are you sure that the body wasn't in the tomb? What, wait, wait, you two guys, you, you walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus? Really? And in the midst of all of this, Jesus shows up. It's recorded in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 6, 36, 6, out of the blue, Jesus just appears in their midst. While they still were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They didn't respond very peacefully. They were startled and frightened, thinking they, had, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? So there they are in the midst of this emotion-laden conversation, and Jesus suddenly appears, and they react with fear. I think this is perfectly understandable. It's one thing to be told that a dead person 
maybe has come back to life. And it's another thing entirely to see that person very suddenly standing right next to you. And furthermore, look at how Jesus arrives. He doesn't knock at the door. He doesn't casually come strolling in. He's just there. And we also know from the account of this story in the book of John that the doors to this room were locked. They were locked because the disciples were deathly afraid that the Jewish authorities would be coming after them next now that they've successfully executed Jesus, their leader. So not only have the disciples been grieving the death of Jesus, not only have they been agonizing over the loss of their messianic hopes, they've been afraid for their own lives. So this room is a cauldron of seething emotion. And that's when Jesus appears, unannounced, having somehow entered a locked room. The disciples can't believe it, and I don't blame them. The last time they'd seen Jesus, he was bleeding to death on a cross, and now he is there in their presence talking to them. Surely this can't be real. It must be a ghost. I think their fear is a natural reaction to a supernatural event. Because even when we believe something to be true, it is overwhelming to be confronted with the supernatural power of God. I think we would react the same way. Just think about this. I firmly believe that Jesus Christ is alive. I hope that you do as well. But, but if he were to show up right here, right now, and stand right there, I would be shaking. I would respond with fear, and I bet you would too. Because whenever the supernatural invades the natural, an awestruck fear is the most logical human response. Unfortunately, Jesus understands how the disciples are likely to respond. So he arrives and simply says, peace be with you. And you may not know it, but that's actually the usual and customary way to greet people in that day. So Jesus is not saying something special. He's using a normal greeting to try to make this unusual encounter as normal as possible. And yet even as he tries to comfort his followers, he also chides them a bit. And it's not for being, it's not for being afraid. It's for having some doubts. He's told them countless times and in countless ways all about what was going to happen. They should have been prepared for his death and resurrection. Yet they're struggling to believe. And because they are struggling to believe, Jesus then gives them some specific proofs that he is alive. Let's continue on in verse 39. Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Isn't that an amazing phrase? 
They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So they're struggling, having a hard time getting past their very human doubt. Jesus does some overt things to prove that it's really him. And so he says to the disciples, he invites them to examine his body visually and see the marks where he had been on the cross. He invites them to actually touch his body to verify that he has physical substance. So they listen to him talk. They see the wounds. They feel his body. And they still can't believe it. They're full of joy, full of joy that it might be true, but they're not yet convinced. And so Jesus asks them for food, and they watch him eat. Spirits don't get hungry. So this very simple, ordinary act of eating is yet another sign that Jesus is alive and has conquered death. It's to show that it's really him. And they need to grasp that for what lies ahead. By the way, when I've taught on this passage in the past... Sometimes I've been asked this question. Okay, if Jesus was physically human, how could he have flesh and bones? How could he eat food and yet walk through a solid wall to get into a locked room? Now that's a valid question. Maybe you've wondered that as well. Here's how I'd answer that. Jesus is a physical being, but not in the same way that you and I are physical. We need to remember that during his life on earth, he was both fully God and fully human. As a result, he did many things that are not humanly possible, such as walking on the water across the Sea of Galilee. I can't do that. Jesus did. And so now in his resurrected state, he he still can do things that defy human ability. He's a man, a physical man. He's also God. Now, for those of you who enjoy scientific explanations of this kind of thing, I want to recommend a book called Beyond the Cosmos by Dr. Hugh Ross. It's a book about the extra-dimensionality of God. And he explains, and we know this to be true from the Bible, that God exists in dimensions of time and space beyond ours. Dr. Ross applies that truth to some biblical texts. And he shows scientifically how Jesus could move through a solid wall while still retaining his physical form. So there can be a scientific explanation for this. And I don't know about you, I find stuff like that pretty interesting. The disciples, though, they don't get a science lesson. They get Jesus. Jesus in the flesh, a Jesus they can talk with and touch, a Jesus who still gets hungry. As Jesus is there with them, saying and doing these things, they realize that Jesus is far more than this amazing teacher that walked the earth with them. 
He must be the Messiah after all, and yet he is so much more of a Messiah than they expected. He's overcome death. And now that he's offered them proof that he truly is alive, he immediately begins to talk about what will come next because there is unfinished business that lies ahead. And in all of this, Jesus is trying to communicate a simple, powerful message. He's saying to the disciples, I'm not finished, and neither are you. Let's take a look, verse 44. He, that's Jesus, said to them, This is what I told you while I still was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Now, did you catch this? Jesus' words are kind of interesting here. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Wait a minute, he's with them. He's with him right then, but he's talking like he's already left. Well, in a very real sense, he already has left. You see, the reality of their relationship has changed because of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he's not really with them any longer, not like before. He's not come back to life simply to pick up where he left off. He's moving on. And they need to accept that and get used to that idea. He wants them to understand that past events are part of God's plan. So they will understand that the future events they're about to step into also are part of God's plan. He reminds them here that the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, is full of prophecies and hints and foreshadowings about Jesus. And if we look, we can find Jesus in the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. We can find Jesus in the writings of the prophets. We can find Jesus in the book of Psalms and the other books of poetry and wisdom. In every book of the Hebrew Bible, there's an indication about the Messiah who is to come. This is not new information for the disciples. Yet despite spending three years with Jesus, despite all of his prior teaching about these things, they just can't connect all the dots. So he opens their minds. He equips them to fully understand the Scriptures. And it is so vital for us to know that this is not some specialized knowledge just for them. We, too, can have that same understanding. It's available to us. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, we have the mind of Christ. Think about that. Followers of Jesus have the mind of Christ. So what does that mean? I think it means that as we pray, as we read the Bible, as we spend time strengthening our connection with God, as we spend time in Christian community talking about the Bible and praying together and encouraging each other in the life of faith, and increasingly we will understand God's purpose and plan and will. We'll be able to grasp spiritual truth and live by faith just as the original disciples did. 
all need the mind of Christ and the wisdom to understand the scriptures because we all have a part to play in God's unfinished business. And as the disciples are about to find out, Jesus is getting ready to equip them for the unfinished business that lies ahead. Verse 46, he, that's Jesus, told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Once again, this is not new information. Jesus previously told them about the Holy Spirit who one day would come as promised by the Father. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 49. The Holy Spirit is going to be sent to the disciples and they will be clothed with power. Now, why do they need this power? Because in the future, they're going to serve as witnesses of Jesus. They've seen Jesus throughout his ministry. They've heard him teach. They watched him perform miracles. They saw him die. And now they will be able to verify that he is again alive. These followers of Jesus are witnesses of astounding, history-making, life-changing truth. And God, therefore, is going to equip them and empower them to boldly talk about what they've seen and heard. They'll be able to explain why Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave. They'll help people understand that Jesus did this as an act of love so that men and women could be forgiven and that if people repent and acknowledge that they've fallen short of what our Creator expects, then they can personally experience God's love and forgiveness. They're going to be empowered to share God's message, a true message of hope and change. And Jesus is giving this message to his personal disciples, his very Jewish disciples. And I don't know if you caught it, but this message that Jesus gives them, this message they will carry, is not just for the Jewish people. It's a message for the nations. Most of the time when we see that word nations in the New Testament, it's a translation of the Greek word ethne. It's where we get our word ethnic. And so when Jesus talks about nations, he's not talking about political or governmental entities. He's not talking about geographical places defined by borders. He's talking about people, people made in the image of God. He's talking about people with different languages and different customs and different cultures and different skin colors. He's telling his followers that God's message of love must be offered to everyone. Which means then as people respond to this message, the community of faith no longer will be exclusively Jewish. It will become multicultural. So in this short, pithy statement, Jesus says, I'm going to empower you with a radical message about a radically different kind of community. 
Now, what Jesus is talking about here doesn't come easily or naturally. Because let's be honest, our very human instinct is to be tribal. And as we read through the book of Acts and as the creation of the early church, we see how hard it was for the Jews to get over this hurdle. It was very difficult for them to welcome non-Jews into the community of faith. They preferred to connect with people who were just like them. And we need to admit that this can be hard for us too. Because our tendency always is to prefer to connect with people who are just like us. And Jesus wants his followers to know that the kingdom of God is supposed to transcend human tribalism. But since it doesn't come naturally, then it only will happen as God's people are led by the Spirit of God. That's why they need power from on high. They're going to need God's power to see the, be able to see the world through the eyes of Jesus and not their own eyes. They're going to be given the Holy Spirit so they can help tackle the unfinished business of building the multicultural, multi-ethnic, global kingdom of God. What a mission. What a purpose. And the timing is not yet quite right to unleash it. Jesus says it's going to happen, but not yet. You need to wait. Need to wait around the city until the time chosen by God. And the disciples don't know it yet, but they're going to have to wait for 50 days. And during those 50 days, Jesus will be attending to some unfinished business. During that time, he's going to appear to his disciples in various places and at various times. And by appearing repeatedly, he's going to remove all doubt of his continued existence. They will be 100% convinced that Jesus is alive. Then Jesus is going to reiterate the importance and centrality of this spirit-empowered mission. And then, on a Jewish holiday called the Day of Pentecost... God is going to pour out His Spirit. He will send the Holy Spirit into the minds and the hearts and the lives of every follower of Jesus. And because of what God does on that day, the world will never be the same. We often let the day of Pentecost slip by without ever even mentioning it. Not this year. The day of Pentecost occurs on May 20th. And on that day, we're going to take some time to understand what God was doing and what God still is doing to complete his unfinished business. As we contemplate the meaning of this passage and its impact for our lives, I think it's important for us to see it as a hinge point in human history. Because of this particular encounter with Jesus, everything begins to change for his followers. Because of this interaction, questions about the past are clarified. Their present reality is redefined. And they now have hope and meaning for the future because Jesus is alive. And beyond that, they also have purpose, a God-given purpose beyond themselves. The purpose to tell others about Jesus. 
God himself will give them the power to fulfill that purpose. None of this would have happened if Jesus would have remained in the grave. None of this would have happened if the disciples were convinced Jesus was dead. If all they would have experienced was the grief of his execution, they would simply go back to work. They would try to resume their lives. And they would do so, I believe, with an ache in their heart for what might have been. If Jesus was dead, oh, they'd remember his teaching. They'd try to follow God in the ways Jesus had explained to them. But it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same without him. So everything began to change when Jesus showed up to prove that he was more than a teacher. He was the living Lord. He is the living Lord. And because he lives, there is unfinished business to address. And that unfinished business involves his followers. And as we ponder this passage, pray over its meaning for us, I find that there's some questions that occur to me. Here's a question that I find myself asking. We may believe that Jesus is alive, but how do we live? Do we live as if he is a teacher who left behind some wonderful, wise, profound principles for us to follow? Or do we live by faith in Him as the risen Lord, trusting Him to guide us through the events of each day? Do we live as if He truly has clothed you and clothed me with power from on high? That's the reality. Do we live it? I believe this story from Jesus is one reason why God asked us to devote ourselves to more prayer this year. The more that you and I pray, the more that we talk with God and listen to God, then the more clearly we're going to see Him at work. The more that we pray, the more we will be able to look beyond ourselves and embrace these incredible purposes that He has left behind for His followers. The more that we pray, the better we will understand the part we can play individually and as a church, the part we can play in the unfinished business of Jesus, the mission of building the kingdom of God.